listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit hopekelowna.ca. Let's get to it, okay. Open your Bibles up, please, to, to Genesis 42. Genesis 42, and if you don't have your Bible here today or have a Bible, the ushers are coming, they have Bibles in their hands and they would love to be able to put one of those in your hands and, um, and uh, open it to Genesis 42. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that Bible home with you and allow God's Word to, to speak into your life, to change you, to transform you, to inform you, to correct and teach for each one of us. We need the Word of God in our lives in such a great way in these days. Now, I thought initially this series would wrap up today, after five weeks, kind of thinking we would walk through the life of Joseph and, and here in the book of Genesis, and I was thinking once we examine the life of Joseph and see, yes, please, um, how he, thank you, how he trusted and stayed true to God despite broken dreams, despite being betrayed and sold into slavery by his brothers, and we, we saw him already, he, he went from the pit into the penthouse, into the prison, and then last week in the palace, and I kind of thought that today we would just breeze over chapters 42 to chapter 50, and we'd get to that perfect family photo setting where Joseph is there with his wife, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, with his dad Jacob, with all the 12 boys there gathered around, uh, all with their family, all in Egypt, all safe from the drama, all safe from everything that was going on. And, and, and we'd kind of get to that point, and especially then we would sing Kumbaya, all of us, in, 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 in Genesis 50, where it talks about such that beautiful verse, that beautiful verse that so many of us know it, we've heard it many times, what was meant for evil, God meant for good, even the salvation of many souls, amen, glory, hallelujah, pass the, pa- pass the marshmallows, we have more, you know, s'mores to make kind of thing, that we kind of get to that point. And, and I kind of thought that's where we would end up um, today. Speaking of family photos and those perfect family photos, I, I went online and found this one. This is about 150, 100. This is perhaps what Joseph and his family would have looked like because there was probably at least 150 of them there, and this was the largest family photo that was half decent uh, that I could find online. And speaking of other family photos, uh, it, you know, portraits people get, I mean, sometimes you just look at, you just wonder, what is this? This is called the sculpture, I guess, you know, and uh, then, then there's this one. Yeah, uh, people with their pets, and uh, quite the pets they do have. Um, don't you find that, if you just go back a little bit, that oftentimes you hear that statement that people end up looking or resembling their pets? You know, just say. Anyways, going on to the next one. Um, and then, uh, yeah, this one here, a little bit of an accident, a little bit, whoops, and, and they caught in the right moment. We had a professional family portrait done once, and that's all we did because that was all that we could take as a family because, as you can see, it didn't turn out so well for us. Now, 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 we often like to get to that family portrait where everyone's done up and everything looks right and everything looks happy and, and, and we smile. And, and, and indeed, by Genesis 50, they are at that happy point. There is that part where God was at work and, and, and there was restoration. It was so beautiful. But what a great story that is. But, but it, how, how God restored, how God just remade this broken family in such a beautiful way. A family that was religious, very religious, and yet they were also so dysfunctional. I mean, the family just reeked, we've talked about this in the past, reeked of dysfunction. 
as, as, as we see a father who, who struggled with favoritism and he was a passive father. He was more concerned about what others would think rather than what was doing what was right for his family. He, 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 um, this was a family filled with abuse and rape and incest and murder and so much deception, so much trickery. Many lies just kind of pervaded this family. And, and God could have easily, he could have just said, you know what, I'm done with them. I'm done with this family. You know what, they, they've just pushed me to the limits. I mean, he did it before. He did it before with Noah. He's just like, I'm keeping you, Noah, and your family. The rest, they're gone. I mean, God could have done this. He could have taken Joseph, could have taken his wife, could have taken Ephraim and Manasseh. They were all still part of the, 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 the lineage from Abraham and Isaac and, you know, Jacob and now Joseph. We could go on here, but, but God doesn't do that. Here we see God's unrelenting, his grace that doesn't give up. He doesn't give up on this family. And you know what? God's grace does not give up on anyone today. God's grace is amazing and it is unrelenting in how he desires to bestow that upon us even today. This is such good news because many of us in reality, we, we may say, oh yes, I'm sorry. You know, I've just related so much to this message, you know, from, from Genesis here and the life of Joseph, I can relate. No, you know what? Mo most of us, we're not like Joseph. We're like Jacob. We're like Jacob and we're like the brothers in so many ways. And yet for Jacob and for his sons, there is grace. This happy ending, that beautiful family portrait at the end of, uh, of, you know, in chapter 45 that you see it and into 46, 47, and that declaration in, in, in chapter 50, though, it didn't happen automatically. And so that's why we just can't quickly just like go from, you know, him being in the palace and, you know, trusting God and seeing God's faithfulness and then to the family united and reunited together. Remember that old song? I think it's from the 80s. Reunited and it feels so good. Any of you remember that? Okay, some of you are, uh-uh, well, you're young, okay, and uh, it was an old song from, anyways, that, that kind of a song just doesn't happen automatically that you can just, you know, get from there, and I mean, you can fake it, but they weren't faking anything here, God was at work, and so we're going to start this morning by doing a quick overview of this chapter, and, and, and then we are going to take and, and we're going to, after doing that overview, we're going to put on a different set of lens. We're going to put some gospel lens onto this. And we're going to see the steps that God used in this family to bring about his amazing grace. Chapter 42 takes place as just the, as the seven years of famine was beginning. The streams, the rivers started to dry up because there was no rain, and when there is no, no rain, there is no grain. Just ask any prairie farmer that. I remember one year going out, I was in college, and, and went out to harvest our crop that, that um, August. It was early August, and crops should never be ready that early in August, but it was so dry, and there was so little rain. I remember going out and trying to harvest grain that was this tall, and kept grounding the equipment into, digging it into the dirt, just trying to get whatever we could, and, and because when the rains don't fall, the grain doesn't come into the bin, 
And food was becoming scarce. And so in verse 1, it starts with Jacob and encourage you to write down these steps as it will be a good overview for your discussions this week. But even just in your own personal study, we're going to write down the, these different movements that we see here in chapter 42 and then the application that comes later. Encourage you to write this down. Jacob is looking at his sons and he's saying, just don't sit there, do something. And, and that's literally pretty much what he says. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said this, behold, remember, what is it when we say behold? It's like, behold, wake up. And, and he's like, you guys, come on. Why are you just looking at each other? Behold, come on. There's grain. He, he says, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. This was getting serious. This was a matter of life and death. This sounds like every parent a few days into summer vacation, doesn't it? <laughs> get out there and do something. Just quit looking at each other. Like, come on, quit fighting. Get out there. Here's Jacob. He's over 120 years old by this point. And he is telling his grown sons, probably in their 50s and 60s, come on, let's get moving. So then, verse 3, so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm may happen to him. Then next we see, the next movement here is we see the brothers bow. The dream, the dreams that Joseph had were partially being fulfilled here. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him and their faces to their ground. And I'm sure he, as he's seen this happen, he's like, oh, my brothers are bowing. The dream, the dream, it's happening. I can't believe this is happening. This is becoming a reality. This is unreal. Although in my dream, there was 11, and right now there's only 10. So the dream isn't fully fulfilled yet. Hmm, there's one missing. Where's Benjamin? Where's Benjamin? Next, we see the test. The brothers didn't recognize Joseph. It has been 20 years, and, uh, and, and they've all grown up. They've all aged a little bit. The brothers' beards have turned kind of that grayish white in color. They are wrinkled and, and, and weathered because of being out in the sun so much. Joseph no longer has that 17-year-old, kind of that boyish beard. You know, that 17-year-olds often try to grow. Um, you know, more than likely, I mean, oftentimes when you're 17 and trying to grow a beard or even 18, 19, somewhere in there, you, 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 the facial hair re resembles more of a volleyball court than it does a, um, a beard, right? Like six on each side kind of thing. You know, that's what it ends up looking like. And, and, and so, you know, Joseph, though, was more than likely, he was clean shaven, no doubt had one of those cone-shaped hats and some eyeliner on, just like all Egyptians do in all the movies. So, you know, this is possibly what Joseph looked like. So they didn't recognize one another. Plus, he spoke to them through an interpreter. He had learned the Egyptian language, and so he, he um, was uh, speaking through an interpreter. And so Joseph starts to wonder, is, is Benjamin alive, or did they hate him too? Did they get rid of him too? Are these still the same guys? Are they still filled with anger and, 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 and hate? Have they changed? How's my dad? How are things with my dad? Is he still alive? And so he tests them. And he speaks harshly to them, accusing them of being spies, coming to check out the land, looking for weak areas in Egypt, defense systems, so as to perhaps come and infiltrate and to perhaps buy or to steal some grain. And they're saying, no, we're not spies. We're not spies. We're brothers. We're all brothers. We're all we all have the same dad. Four different moms. 
part of the whole mess of the family. But we're all, you know, we're all brothers here in this. And, and, and so, so here you have, and, and they even say, there's actually 12 of us. One is at home and one is no more. Little did they know they were speaking to the no more brother. So cool. And Joseph is, I don't believe you. In fact, I'm going to keep you all here and I'm going to send one of you back home. And you're going to go and bring the other one because I'm convinced you're spies. And, and so because I'm not convinced that, that, that you are who you are, that, that you need to go and bring your, your other brother here so I can see that um, you're telling me the truth. And so you're all going to stay here in custody and the other one of you is going to go back. And now I'm going to make you think about it for three days. So he throws them into the slammer for three days. Then after three days, he brings them out and he said, I've changed my mind. I'm going to send all of you home except one. And I'm going to keep you here, and I trust that you are going to bring your youngest brother back, and together all of you will prove to me that indeed you're not spies. The fourth thing that we see here, the brother's admission of guilt. Verse 21, Joseph overhears them, because they think they're speaking in Hebrew, and, and he, they're thinking he can't hear them, and it says in verse 21, in truth we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul, and he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. They're, they're starting to think, God's getting even with us. God's, God's angry, and God's getting us for this, for what we did to Joseph. This is God coming to us here. Next, we see Joseph wept. The brothers had been speaking to one another. Joseph is listening to this, and here we see the heart of Joseph. So beautiful, so beautiful. He weeps. Rather than hatred and revenge, there is love, there is compassion. And then the last thing we see here in this chapter is a long journey home. There would have been a lot of silence on that journey. Joseph then, ha uh, Joseph had um, Simeon, the, his brother, seized and taken into custody and sent all the rest back. They, they went back with grain for their households. Uh, they sent them back with, with donkey loads of, of grain and little did they know that all the money they used to buy that grain was also placed in their sacks. Verse 28, when they discovered the money in the sacks, look at, listen to what they say. Their hearts failed them, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? And then they, and, and then they would have had to explain everything to their father and, and listen to what Jacob's response is in verse 36, as he hears this news, he says, Joseph is no more. Now Simeon, and now you want to take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Jacob for years, for decades, has lived a life that has been in many ways out of control. And because he's lived a life that's been out of control, his family has been living this life. This, the years of dysfunction and trickery and favoritism and all of these things, it's just all piling up. And it's such a broken mess. And he's coming to this point. He says, all of this is against me. I mean, when you think about everything that was going on in this family, I mean, years of therapy, shock therapy, meds, counseling, couldn't fix this messed up lot of a family. And yet little did we know that he and his family were on a collision course with God's amazing grace. In the end, this family was restored. Many lives were saved because, from the famine. And this family, from the brokenness and the ruin, 
would be the bloodline that would continue on. That bloodline, that family tree that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, would come from. How amazing is that? Today, loved ones, because of Jesus, there is hope. Because of Jesus, there is hope for every life, every family, every situation that we face because Jesus is that amazing. But as we see this pivotal chapter here, we see some necessary steps were taken in, in chapter 42 that allowed this collision course with God's amazing grace to flow. Now, we're going to re-examine this chapter with the gospel lens on, and I'd encourage you, there's a number of points that I encourage you to write this down, because this is how they and this is how we can experience God's amazing grace. To experience God's amazing grace, first of all, write this down, we must recognize we are all broken by sin. Verse four, chapter 42, it starts with the brothers just sitting around. I mean, these were boys who were get-it-done kind of guys. I mean, they weren't ones to normally sit around. You might recall earlier, we talked about this, I believe, in week one of this series in Genesis 34, when, when, one of their, when their sister was raped, they took matters into their own hands, and they went and they killed the rapist, his family, and they decided to wipe out the entire village. These were guys that when the job needed to get done, you could count on them. They would get in there, they would do whatever was necessary, but for some reason, they didn't want to go to Egypt. Was it because Egypt represented a place of shame, of regret? I mean, they, I'm sure they didn't even think that they would even think of running into Joseph if they went there because they probably figured by now he was a dead slave somewhere in a ditch somewhere, that he was no longer alive. But knowing that it was the country that they sold their brother into as a slave, that even in walking to Egypt and passing by the very pit that they had thrown him into, hearing again in their heads over and over the screams and the pleas of their brother, don't do this, don't do this. And these, these thoughts for 20 years have replayed. They've woken up in the middle of the night with these screams and with these pleas and they're yelling and everything that went on and the trickery and the lies that they kept from their father in order so, so that he wouldn't know the truth. And so and we don't want anything to do with Egypt. We're staying as far away from Egypt as possible. Loved ones today, we must recognize and realize we've all been broken by sin. Yes, in varying degrees for each one of us, but broken is still broken. And today, regardless of the past, what you have done, what you are even currently doing today, regardless of the injustice and the hurt that has been caused to you by another, no matter the hurt, no matter the sin, no matter the memories, the flashbacks, the regret, those screams that you may hear in the middle of the night, no matter the guilt, the shame, the abuse, today can be a fresh start down the road to God's amazing grace of freedom and forgiveness. But first, we must recognize that we are all broken. We are all broken by sin. But then second of all, we must welcome awakening guilt. This is so important, folks. We must welcome awakening guilt. Joseph, upon seeing his brothers, is led by God to test them. 
This wasn't about revenge. This wasn't tit for tat. You did this to me. I'm going to do it to you. This wasn't about revenge at all. This was testing. Now, there is the cause and effect, the reap what you sow when it comes to our sin. There's the choose to sin, choose to suffer principle. We see this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. But this isn't what's going on here. This wasn't the reaping what you're sowing that, that this was happening because of what they did here. This was an appointment with God's grace that he had for them. And God used these circumstances. And so with harsh words, Joseph accuses them of espionage, of being spies, and he throws them into the dungeon. Joseph, in effect, as you think about this, it, he's holding up a mirror to what his very own brothers did to him 20 years ago. 20 years ago, they spoke harshly to him. They roughed him up. They threw him into a pit. They would be confronted. They would experience what they did to Joseph. They would experience themselves now 20 years later. And you know what? God allows us at times to be on the receiving side of what we have done to others. To be that mirror to wake us up. We see that, that God used the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12. He, when he confronted David in his sin, he told him a story. And, and as he told him the story, David became more and more angry. And, he, and, 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 and then all of a sudden, Nathan flipped the tables and says, it was you. You were the man. You're the man in this story. And David broke because the mirror was held up to him. You know, six or seven years into ministry for us, we were pastoring in a small town in, a, in, in another province, and, and honestly, I had no time for people who weren't well in the head, if you know what I mean. I mean, I, I mean people who struggled with depression or fear or panic attacks. It's like, come on, what's your problem? Read your Bible. You're probably not reading your Bible. I mean, confess sin. You probably have some hidden sin in your life, so deal with it. Or get exercising. Get moving. Get, come on. You know what? God can't use someone who's stalled out like that. And, you know, or, you know, just, I had very little patience, very little compassion. Until, boom, one day the cloud hit me. And as the weeks and months went by, I got into a very, very dark place. And by God's grace, and in taking specific steps of vulnerability and accountability, help from others, the Lord brought that healing to me over time. Praise his name for that. And since then, when people start talking, when I hear of people who aren't well in the head, it's like I, I know exactly, not exactly, but I can identify with what is going on with you. I have an understanding and a compassion, can give some of my story and, and some of the things that were so helpful for me and for others as I've been gaining that over the years along that journey. And I look back upon that season that I thought was going to end my life, that I despaired of life. And if I was to kind of count the top 10 things that have happened in my life, that would be in the top 10 of blessings that God has used for good in me and in my life. His blessings, His grace. 
And so what is happening here to the brothers, this is a powerful appeal to their conscience. This is a wake-up call. The mirror is being held in front of them. And, and Joseph, as he overhears them in verse 21, he says, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when, we begged, when he begged us, we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. God was awakening their guilt. This guilt that they had been carrying, that had been suppressed, that they tried to ignore for 20 years, and God was awakening it. It was in this moment that they were actually experiencing the beautiful grace of God. They were coming face to face with the realization that their sin was evident, that their sin had not been dealt with. This was good guilt. This was healthy guilt. This was God-given guilt that was moving them to grace. Loved ones, listen, without guilt, without the acknowledgement of sin, there can be no forgiveness, no resolution when it comes to our sin. Now, now let's face it, the enemy does love to come to us and make us feel guilty and to shame us about things and to beat us up and remind us of the past oh, over the things we've said, over the things we've done, things we've already confessed that are under the blood of Christ. He will come hard at us on that. But again, this isn't what we're talking about here. And, and, but when that does happen, we do stand and we do declare God's word that I am a new creation, that the old is gone, the new has come, and we stand putting on the gospel armor daily to, to, to be able to protect ourselves from those onslaughts. True guilt is a grace from God because the guilty can seek forgiveness and repent and find freedom. And this, loved ones, is so needed today. It's so needed in our society. It's so needed in our lives because you know what? We don't like talking about guilt these days. In, in, instead, we, we're in this guilt-denying culture of victimhood. We're all victims. Psychology and even some preachers today try to downplay and dismiss our sinfulness and, and, and our guilt. They talk about mistakes and slip-ups and bad judgment rather than sin and immorality and rebellion and depravity. You know the, the Will Smith slap that took place on Chris Rock a number of weeks ago? The slap heard around the world, I guess you could say, in many ways. And so I read this week that, it, 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 that, that some are saying it is a result of 400 years of racial oppression that caused Will Smith to go up there and to slap him. That, that it's because he's been racially oppressed and, and been among the oppressed for 400 years. No, he's an angry man living far away from God and his, his, his boiling point is being hit because what's happening in his life, what's happening in his career, though he wins and all these different things, his life is falling apart. Only Jesus can bring the full healing there. But we try to explain it and justify it and give everything a diagnosis when the diagnosis is in God's word that it is sin and our sin needs to be identified and it needs to be dealt with. And God will use that emptiness on the inside. He will use the conviction of events from our past, bring things into our present, things that have been hidden, and he will hold that mirror up to us out of love, out of grace, 
to take us back to those places so that we would acknowledge our sin, we would acknowledge the sorrow and the brokenness. James chapter 4 verse 9 says to weep and to wail and to mourn over our sin. That's what we are to do. But to embrace it as a prelude to grace. His grace is coming. Grace is coming for this family. And grace can come anew and afresh into any and every life here today. But there's another test for the boys. He, he, he binds Simeon and, and he takes him into custody. And, and, and then without the other brothers knowing, he slips all the money back into their sacks of grain. He puts it all back there. And it's a test for them. Will they take the money and run? Will they find some other way to feed their family and keep the money? Will they leave Simeon to rot in this jail? I mean, they left Joseph to rot in this jail. Were they going to leave Simeon the same? They sold Joseph out for 20 pieces of silver. Was what they just said prior to this just a momentary twinge of remorse and feeling bad? Or are they on the path of genuine biblical repentance? And you see... It's so vital and so, so important that we welcome this awakening guilt, but that we don't stay there, that we get to point number three here, that, that in order to experience God's amazing grace, we must move from regret and remorse to repentance. Verse 28, when the brothers discovered all the money that is in, uh, that it, that's in their uh, sacks of grain, what does it say? It says, their hearts failed them. They were just like, Oh, man. They are on the path of repentance, though, that we will see that will lead them to this grace. But what is biblical repentance? What is true repentance? We toss and turn this word around as part of Christian lingo, but what is it? Do we understand what biblical repentance is? One of the most difficult and sad things I've been a part of in ministry involved a senior couple years ago in another church. They had been faithful missionaries, or so it seemed. And then in Canada, upon returning from the mission field, they served faithfully in churches in Canada. They came to our church, faithful, faithful people. They were such a blessing. We had very few seniors, really none at all, and they were in their mid to late 80s. And we welcomed them. And, and when this woman prayed, you just wanted to be around this woman. We would have her pray in a Sunday morning service. And seriously, heaven would come down when she prayed. It was just so powerful. She was this mighty prayer warrior, this woman of faith. Sadly for him, he was in the early stages of dementia. One day their daughter came to me. She was in her early 60s and she came and she said, you need to know something about my dad and about my mom. She went on to say that my parents left the mission field years ago in shame because of my dad's sexual sin. But my dad never truly repented of that sin. He expressed remorse. He never repented to my mother or to us as kids. And she went on to describe the trail of sexual sin and hurt and anger and dysfunction in her brother and in her sister's lives and in now their families. And she was concerned not only about her own dad's standing before God, 
but also the state of the family because the sins of the father carry on. And she asked if the elders would consider coming and confronting him in hopes of restoring this family and in hopes that there would be genuine repentance before God and before his family. And after much discussion and prayer, I went with a number of the elders to confront this man. We went out to their little farm. We talked about their missionary endeavors and many fond stories. His memory was crystal clear. But then when we confronted the sin and how it was destroying his family, he became angry, he picked up his cane, and he started yelling, and he even yelled out, and they were all better than my wife anyways and kicked us out of the home, threatening us with his cane. We waited nearby, listening, to make sure his anger wasn't taken on towards his wife and his daughter. My last memory of him was a number of months later, I went to the senior's home that he was then put into, and I thought, I need to go one more time. And I went to him and tried the same thing, a pleasant visit until I brought it up, and then the anger came out, and the last picture of him was me exiting the home and I'm on the outside of that senior's home. He's on the inside with his cane just pounding it against the plexiglass and just get out, get out, get out. He had the opportunity to repent and to be restored with his God and to see his family restored. And to my knowledge and to the knowledge of his family, he never made peace with God and he never made peace with his family. You see, biblical repentance isn't just regret. It isn't just remorse and sorry that we got found out. Not just having a bad feeling for a little while over some wrong or sinful things that we've done. It's more than that. Look at this verse on the screen, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 12. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces sorrow. You feel sorrowful, you feel bad. Godly grief, though, produces a repentance that leads to what? Salvation. It's not good enough just to feel bad about the mistakes we've made. It's to repent of the sins we've committed. Biblical repentance is what leads to this true salvation in Christ. And that repentance is more than just an emotional surge where we had some, some tears that are shed or a prayer that was prayed or a hand that was raised or a box that was checked or a date that's written on the fly leaf of a Bible and then the whole deal, the whole transaction was later capped off by getting dunked in a baptismal tank and now I'm good. Biblical repentance that leads to salvation starts with godly grief and sorrow, knowing and understanding that our sin is first and foremost against God. It's understanding and admitting that I'm flat out guilty. We're all broken. And I deserve, because of my sin, I deserve death. I deserve to die. Knowing and admitting that it was my sin that put Christ on the cross. But then understanding what he did for us on the cross and understanding then that receiving this free gift of salvation is life-giving and heart-changing and so altering of for our lives. It's knowing and understanding. I love this statement. I heard it a while ago that the only thing that I contribute to my salvation is my sin. 
I can't do anything to receive salvation other than to receive it no, as a free gift from God. And it's for my sin that Christ died. That's why Easter, that's why next weekend is a big deal. We receive His grace, His salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. And, 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 and by experiencing godly grief, because godly grief produces a repentance that then leads to salvation. Repentance literally means an about-face. A radical reversal, a change of mind, a change of might and heart that leads to a rewiring of our thinking and a change in our priorities and in how we live. If someone prays and receives Christ as their Lord and Savior and there's no change in them and they continue to keep living the lives that they've been living, chances are that never took that they never truly repented in Christ and His Holy Spirit has never come in because when the Holy Spirit comes in, He starts making, doing some renovations, right? You ever see that in, in uh, someone buys a home in a fixer-up area of town and all of a sudden the bin shows up and they start chucking out all this stuff and it's time to renovate? Hey, you know what? God needs to do that renovation work in us. He wants to clean us and He starts, he starts on the inside. He starts with the guts that moves out to the externals and it is seen. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to, true, to salvation. It's about aligning our thoughts and our values and how we live our life. L living it in light of, of passages like Colossians chapter 3 and, and, and Ephesians 4. Write those down, read those, these these mark the, the life of someone who has repented, who has salvation, that is desiring to live for God. Where we're putting off the old self, we're desiring to be done with our sin and putting on the new life in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. It isn't just to let go and let God and His Holy Spirit just take, well, I guess it didn't, you know, He's not giving me the power. No, we use our strength, our discipline. We walk together in the power of the Holy Spirit. We battle, we are weak, we stumble, we fall, but we continue to get up. But we don't make peace with our sin and just, well, that's just the way I am. Everyone's weak, everyone has their vice, everyone has their guilty pleasure. The mind happens to be this, mine happens to be it, I mean, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. We make war, we fight on, and we fight on our sin. We, we make war on our sin, we fight it, we repent not just once, but we repent daily as necessary. We feast ourselves in the word of God on his truth. We rearrange our lives so that others are a part of our lives to hold us accountable, to walk with us, to strengthen, and for us to do the same for them. In humility, we invite others to journey with us and us with them, walking in vulnerability and accountability, together pursuing holiness and Christ-likeness. The fourth thing in experiencing God's amazing grace then, is once that there has been recognized and we're all broken by sin, that we welcome this awakening guilt into our lives and then we move from regret to remorse to true repentance. God, I'm sorry, I changed my mind. I, about face, I'm doing a 180, I'm walking your way, I desire to live for you today, God. And then that fourthly, receive it freely from the Lord Jesus. Now think about this. In the story of Joseph, and this is so beautiful, the one whom the brothers had cursed and offended and betrayed and left for dead was the very one who held their lives in his hand. Does that remind you of anyone? 
Jesus is all over this story. Jesus is the greater Joseph. The one whom I've offended is the one who holds my life, my eternity in his hands. The brothers didn't recognize him, yet Joseph recognized them right from the start. He recognized them right away. You know what? In in Ephesians chapter 1, if you need to be reminded of this, you need to know that Ephesians chapter 1, that Jesus, his father, they recognized you and me long before we recognized them. They recognized us before the creation of the world that we would be his sons and his daughters. He knew that on April 10th, 2022, that you would be on a collision course today with God's amazing grace, either to receive it for the first time, truly with, God, with godly guilt and with godly sorrow that leads to repentance and an about face and saying, I've been in church, but I haven't been in Christ. Or I, I've never given my life to Jesus Christ. It's a new way of thinking that leads to a new way of living. Or perhaps to re-engage because you've been running from grace. You've been running from Jesus. You've been wandering and living as a prodigal. Oh, maybe you're still even coming to church, but in your mind, in your heart, in your loves, in your affection, you're a prodigal. And it's time to come home. It's time to be clean. It's time to come clean on the sin. The brothers get back home to their dad, and it's there that they discover all the money has been put back in the sacks of grain. Joseph even, I mean, this is just the grace of Joseph. This is the grace of Jesus in our lives, so beautiful. Joseph even gave them provision for the journey. He gave them food. He gave them water. He gave them snacks along the trip. You know, that's just God's grace. He gives us more than we deserve, doesn't he? This is grace upon grace. We living in this stinking, amazing country of Canada. Oh, we're belly aching over the condition of things. Vicky, is Canada a better country than India? <laughs> Thumbs up, just, just arrived back here. He says... we have so much to be thankful for and we complain. I I like what Brett said this past week, we're more into fleology than we are into theology, knowing that God will take care of us. Instead, we're looking to head for the hills when God says, hey, we are to follow his word, his truth, his mission for our lives. We have grace upon grace. These undeserving, stinking men We're so unworthy, and yet they discover Romans 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that's going to lead them to repentance. It's God's unmerited, undeserved favor upon their lives. I love this quote by Paul Tripp about God's grace. Even your most rebellious day, God blesses you with the warmth of the sun, the whisper of the wind, and the song of the bird. That's grace. That's grace. These undeserving men are showing grace upon grace, and so are we. Let's bow our heads. The band comes. I just encourage you to keep your head bowed. It's just a way of just some self-reflection and prayer.
God in his love uses famines, he uses dungeons, he uses pain in our lives, self-inflicted or caused by others. He will use the loss of jobs, he will use illness, even at times the loss of loved ones. He can and he will use it all to bring us to that cleansing wave of his amazing grace and provision for us. He uses that feeling of emptiness on the inside, even though we may look and appear to have the world by the tail. He can and he will use things, whatever it takes, to bring us to where he brought these brothers to their awareness of their great need. But also, God brings us to the awareness of his great provision for us. His provision of forgiveness and freedom and an unlimited supply of his grace that can bring true healing and restoration to anyone who humbles themselves before God with godly sorrow and true repentance. And perhaps you're sitting here today, you're listening online or watching online and listening or later on this week to the podcast. And perhaps you would admit that the cupboards are bare. The famine is going on. Outside things look fine, but all put together. Let's remember that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. can even be going through the spiritual motions, and yet that famine is there, but Jesus offers bread, the bread of life. And just as Joseph wept over his brothers as they struggled, Jesus weeps for us, longing to embrace us with his unlimited, unmerited grace. Run to him today. In your guilt, in your conviction of sin, Run to him in repentance. Run to this grace. And so God, even now, we stand amazed and perplexed at what you would do for us in giving us Jesus. Jesus, who is a friend of sinners. Jesus, the one who is despised and rejected and left for dead, a man of sorrows, familiar with all suffering and grief. And yet through it all, holds to us a hand of amazing grace and mercy, forgiveness and life. And God, I pray that you would meet us here even now as we respond however we need to, to run to your amazing grace. I've had people praying this morning. We don't know, wasn't sure how to end our time here today. But if God is stirring in your hearts and you need to nail it down today and you need to run to his amazing grace either for the first time or just because it's been a long time. As the brothers had to make that walk home and then a walk back to Canaan, we'll get there eventually. Or they walk back to Egypt. Maybe today it's making that walk as we worship the Lord even now. And just getting on your knees here at the front, there's some empty chairs getting on your knees or just sitting at the front here and just pouring your heart out to God and say, oh God, I need your grace. 
Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. God, I repent that you express that sorrow for your sin and what it has cost our God and how our sin has ruined our lives and ruined the lives of others. But first and foremost, it's that offense to God. Run to that amazing grace this morning as we sing, as we worship. Come to the front if you so desire and meet with the Lord today. Let's stand together and worship.